Today's episode of Weed Week is brought to you by Jars. Jars makes high-performance glass lines containers to store, transport, and enjoy cannabis flower wherever your adventures take you. To learn more about how Jars lovingly designed containers will help you elevate your adventures, visit Jars.com. That's J-Y-A-R-Z.com, and the Y is silent. Welcome to Weed Week, everybody. I'm Haley Fox. I'm Alex Halpern. And we have yet another great show for you this week. We're going to start out with the news, going over the big um, issues of the last few days, and then get to an interview with Molly Ball, a Time Magazine journalist, um, who will be talking about her recent cover story on Jeff Sessions. But before we get there, Alex, why don't you kick us off with my favorite topic, marijuana and beer? Yeah, it's really about time that that we we got to this um so a a colorado company called ebu announced that it's partnering with the founder or the, the creator of blue moon beer to create cannabis beer and um they say that will be available by the by the end of the year and as it happens a co-founder of that company who was thrown out of it who goes by michael duma wenchu is also starting a, a different cannabis beer company up in, in Canada, except rather than brew beer normally and infuse THC, he wants to brew the beer out of the cannabis plant, which would be the first time that has ever been done. So I wrote in, in 2016, I wrote a long and involved story about Duma's time at, at Ebu, and we'll definitely be following these two efforts to bring marijuana and beer together at last. Well, and I have a quick question for you, Alex, because I know this has come up before. How um, how are they getting around the laws right now about mixing, um, you know, beer and cannabis, alcohol and cannabis? So I, I think both products will be de-alcoholized. So no, no state, and I'm pretty sure when Canada legalizes gotcha. edibles as well, they won't, these products will only contain... THC. So when you say alcohol. beer, we're saying beer kind of in quotes because it won't be beer. It'll be a basically a beverage that contains THC. Right. It's sort of like non-alcoholic craft beer okay, containing THC. That's sort of Ebu's. And then Province Brands in Canada is trying to make make the beer out of the marijuana itself. So just a reminder, the reason I was confused on this is because as far as we know, in every state, even where um, recreational weed is legal, it and alcohol cannot mix. So you can't have them in the same product and you can't, for instance, go to your local bar and also purchase a weed cookie from them or go to your local dispensary and get a beer. The kind of two may be close to each other, but they are never allowed to meet. Right. And now some more good news. Um a study on opiates and marijuana. Yeah, so this is something that has kind of been discussed a lot anecdotally, but this shows some actual quantifiable evidence. Um, basically, two studies came out last week demonstrating um, what a lot of people have kind of said, which is that weed can and is being used by people as a replacement for opioids. Um, so basically, people are willing to skip the heavy-duty prescription painkillers like oxycodone um, and instead use cannabis to manage their symptoms um, because weed, uh, although it can be an effective painkiller, doesn't have a lot of the risks of addictions and um, a lot of the side effects that some of these heavy uh 
heavy-duty opioids do. So according to these studies, basically it showed that people who can get easy access to medical marijuana are less likely to reach for opioids. Um, In fact, researchers found a 14% decrease in opioid prescriptions in states where medical marijuana is easy to access. And I think the kind of number that brought it home for me is that what that translated to is that the study estimated the number of opioid prescriptions were reduced by 3.7 million daily doses. So that's just in the study sample they looked at and just in these um, states where it was easy to access medical marijuana. So, I mean, this is kind of huge in itself. And it also, obviously, with the opioid epidemic going on in the country and people desperate for, um, you know, solutions, this could be one of them. And Molly Ball later on will be talking about Jeff Sessions and he doesn't buy any of this. Yes, exactly. So we'll get more in depth to this a little bit later um, but first, another, you know, kind of really um, illuminating point that I think is going to affect a lot of people in this country. Alex, tell us about kind of this protest going on um, in D.C. and what's happening. So there's a group of uh, marijuana activists in D.C. who've taken to sort of staging protests where they give out um, marijuana to uh, lawmakers and and other officials. So they had a protest outside of the Department of Housing and Urban Development since some D.C. residents can't use their medical marijuana in in public housing. And while D.C. is a special case, this likely applies to public housing and student loans and, and other federal programs nationwide. So the issue isn't limited to D.C., but it it's concentrated there. So that's the news for this week. And if you want Lots more news. You can subscribe to our newsletter, Weed Week, at weedweek.net. And in a moment, we'll get to our interview with Molly Ball, and that'll be after the break. This episode of Weed Week is brought to you by JARS High Performance Glass Line Containers. JARS has a unique triple block design with three layers to enhance freshness and keep dank odors contained. JAR's exterior cap and shell form an airtight seal, which means the entire container and its contents can be submerged in water. And you can clean it in seconds. The second layer of protection is a thick silicone gasket inside the cap, which forms yet another airtight seal. The last component of the triple block design are the shell and cap made of recycled HPDE plastic, which has a waxy and slick surface, so smelly substances don't stick to it. Go to jars.com, that's J-Y-A-R-Z.com. The Y is silent. And enter Weed Week at checkout for 10% off your next order. Okay, we're back. And let's get to this interview. Um, Molly Ball is a national political correspondent for Time Magazine and a political analyst for CNN. She previously worked for The Atlantic and Politico, and she's also an old friend of mine. We'll be talking to her about her recent Time Magazine cover story on Jeff Sessions the attorney general who's come up a lot on this podcast because of his relationship with cannabis and his opposition to legalization. While Molly's story doesn't focus on the issue of marijuana, um, the article and her interview with us provides a lot of insight into this very powerful figure. So here's that conversation. Hey, Molly, it's Alex and Haley. How's it going? Hi there. Hi, Haley. Good. Thanks. How are you guys? Good. Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, happy to. All right. So before we get to the story, 
we, we just have to talk about the the cover picture for a second. So it's not it's not the most apic- appealing picture of of Jess Sessions. Sort of, can you describe it a bit and tell us what the thinking was behind it? Well, I'm not the photographer. We have uh, separate photographers and writers at Time Magazine, which is a good thing because I have no talent in that regard. Uh, but the incredibly talented photographer Philip Montgomery uh, did a portrait shoot with the Attorney General in his office. You know, I think it's a dramatic picture. Philip has a style that's been described as sort of a film noir. He often shoots in black and white. He just won a National Magazine Award for uh, some photos of the opioid crisis that he did for The New Yorker. Um, And I don't, I I know that we uh, at time were criticized by some who thought that the picture was intentionally sinister. I didn't see it that way. I think uh, the popular image of Sessions as portrayed, you know, in the parody on SNL, for example, is as this sort of sprightly, impish person. And this is a picture that demands that you take him seriously, right? It has a certain perhaps intimidating sort of gravitas to it. And uh, and at the same time, you can see a little bit of a smile curling his lips. You can see a little bit of that uh joviality that I think is also part of his character shining through. So I think it's a brilliant portrait. Uh, Again, I'm not a a professional at all in this regard, but I liked the way it captured some of that duality that I see in sessions. Well, and that's that's really interesting because kind of, you know, the other thing before we get to the real meat of this story is, um, you know, I'm wondering kind of what it was like for you traveling with Jeff Sessions. Um, in addition to all the really, um, you know, interesting insights your story brings together, were you able to get any sort of perspective on who, you know, Sessions is as an actual person kind of behind the policy and politics? Oh, yeah. And I, I've been following him. I've been interested in him for a long time because he, even before Trump came along, was such an interesting outlier in the Republican Party and in the Senate. He had these beliefs that uh, didn't even comport with a lot of his conservative colleagues, and he saw a lot of other Republicans as the sort of uh, this party of Wall Street that that couldn't relate to his, his working class constituents in Alabama. So he is a sort of avatar of the sort of Breitbart style populism that Trump then came along and tried to and, 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 and came to embody. And uh, as I mentioned in the piece, b- before uh, Steve Bannon latched on to Donald Trump, he tried to get Jeff Sessions to run for president uh, because he agreed with this this populism, the, these these stances on things like immigration and trade that uh, that Sessions had been championing for some time. So, um, yeah, as a person, uh, Sessions is uh, he's not a stiff like a lot of politicians. <laughs> he's uh, he's an easy person to talk to uh, and he's absolutely sure of what he believes. He's he's quite dogmatic about it. And he's and he's had these arguments for a long time. He's had these arguments with his with his colleagues. He's made these arguments on the floor of the Senate. He's ultimately someone who uh, takes policy very, very seriously. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in in Washington and in politics who don't. There's a lot of people for whom policy is a means to an end, and they just sort of want to figure out what it is will get them to the next bigger stage of their career, and that's what they'll decide to believe in. Uh, Sessions isn't like that. And the piece uh, that I wrote is mostly about policy for that reason, because I was interested in understanding what he believes now that he is in a place where he is putting those beliefs into practice and affecting the lives of so many people. 
one area where his his views differ from a lot of Republicans is is on prison, and and he has a really maximalist view on incarceration in terms of punishment and such. And a lot of Republicans sort of were never with him on this, and certainly there's been movement away from this view in the past. I mean, what's what has kept him arguing for sending people to prison for the the longest maximum uh, amount of time? Well, part of it is that his politics were very much forged by his early career as a prosecutor in the 60s and 70s, um, particularly in the 70s when the, the crime wave was sweeping the nation, was at its height, was really a national panic and crisis. Uh, and that was at a time when, uh, you know, the idea was very much put more cops on the street, put more people in prison. Uh, and that's the only way we're going to stem the tide of these incredibly high crime rates. I mean, really unimaginable by the standards of what we see today. And so in the intervening decades, we did put a whole lot of people in prison, particularly a lot of people of color. And there were a lot of bad effects of that. And so there's now been this criminal justice reform movement uh, spearheaded in part by conservatives like uh, Chuck Colson, the, uh, f- who um, went from uh, you know Nixon henchman to prison reformer and has really helped uh, get a lot of people on the, on the right side of the aisle to see uh, that incarceration, uh, it, it, in his view, had, had gone overboard and that uh, policing had had uh, w- had turned into something that was sowing distrust in, in communities, in poor communities in particular. And so, as you say, there are a lot of Republicans now uh, who have trended away from these views. Uh, but it wasn't so long ago that this was very much the mainstream view. I mean, think of the 1990s and Bill Clinton being tough on crime and presiding over executions in Arkansas and signing the 1994 crime bill. Uh, which Joe Biden was also very involved in, uh, that now is looked back on by many uh, civil rights activists in particular as as uh, not such a good thing. But at the time, uh, this was a big bipartisan thing that everybody agreed on. So uh, you might say that Sessions just conti- has continued to champion that earlier consensus and has not been swayed by the the new the the new direction in which the consensus has turned, which is very much toward reform, uh, toward uh, trying to decrease incarceration levels, both uh, as a social good and as a fiscal good, because states had been spending huge sums of money building all of these prisons. So uh, you have seen a lot of states who started to dial this back. On the federal level, there's a bipartisan movement to try to reduce uh, federal incarceration, and they've succeeded uh, in tandem with the Obama administration, which was very much on board with this, succeeded in reducing the federal prison population by about 40,000 in the past uh, five years. And when Jeff Sessions goes around and speaks to law enforcement groups, he points to that and says, this is a problem. We've let 40,000 people out of prison. That means we've got some room. We've got to put more people in those beds if we've got the capacity for them. So that's very much how he sees the world, is that if you've got room in the prisons, that means that there's criminals on the streets that need to be put there. 
And so, you know, very closely related to um, all of his views on um, incarceration and the prison system, um, you know, more specifically and what we've talked about a lot on this podcast um, is the war on drugs and which you actually reference um, in your piece as being described by some experts now as a, quote, counterproductive failure. Um, but, you know, Jeff Sessions still seems to be kind of waging this war. Um, where do you think his support in this regard comes from, you know, specifically kind of related to the war on drugs? In terms of who supports him in this effort, I mean, uh, certainly Donald Trump supports him in this effort. I think a lot of the of Trump's rhetoric in the campaign could have come straight out of, you know, a 1980s uh, PSA about just say no, right? And, mm-hmm. and the way that he talked about the opioid crisis, the way that he talked about drugs coming over the border and the scourge of drugs was... Uh, I don't want to say it was out of date, but it very much seemed uh, parachuted in from that earlier era. And that's the way that Sessions talks about this stuff as well. And um, there's this incredibly powerful, to me, scene in the piece where he's sitting with a group of um, families, uh, family members of opioid victims, people who who's, have had loved, loved ones die uh, from from mostly from fentanyl overdoses. And they're saying, you know, we we need uh, new approaches to drugs. We can't rely on just say no. We need more federal resources. We need more money for treatment. And Sessions, at the end of hearing all of these terribly sad stories, uh, says to this group of, of grieving parents, says, well, how many of your loved ones had treatment before they died? And almost all of the parents raised their hands. And he says, well, see, treatment's great, but... Uh, doesn't work for a lot of people. And uh, I asked him about that later on the plane, and he said he has not seen convincing evidence that that treatment works on a consistent basis. And not only that, he believes the promotion of treatment as a sort of panacea is itself dangerous because it sends the message to young people who might be considering trying drugs for the first time that it's nothing to be afraid of, that if uh, you try drugs and it doesn't go so well, you just go into treatment and everything will be fine. Uh, when in reality, uh, it, it's not so easy and a lot of people don't uh, can't successfully kick the habit and, uh, and, and do end up in dire circumstances. So, um, so the message he's trying to send is don't ever try it. And he thinks that, you know, incarceration and strict enforcement uh, is a part of that as well, that if you make it clear to people that there are going to be consequences, uh, they'll be they'll be less likely. That'll be that'll be a deterrent to them trying it in the first place. It's hard to talk about Sessions without talking somewhat about race and his his critics often call him a racist. And he was rejected for a federal judgeship in the in the 80s for having, I guess, out of the mainstream views on race. Um, from your reporting, how do you see race informing his views? Yeah, I mean, it's not at all incidental, given that the Department of Justice is the civil rights enforcement agency of the United States. It's specifically charged with uh, preserving and overseeing and enforcing civil rights. And in the Obama administration, more than anything else Barack Obama did, it was the uh, policy directions pursued by the Justice Department, by particularly Attorney General Eric Holder, that were seen as the tip of the spear in in accomplishing racial progress, Uh, you know, whether it was 
oversight of the racist practices of local police departments and uh, getting them to enter into consent decrees to, to reform their practices, famously in places like Ferguson, uh, whether it was uh, the uh, proactive work of the Civil Rights Division and voting rights um, and, and, and crucially on criminal justice, since the criminal justice system is the source of uh, what advocates uh, would describe as the uh, structural inequities that affect so many people of color. Uh, it is really the Justice, Justice Department is, in effect, the, she, the, the, the center of sort of racial policymaking that affects the lives of uh, of, of particularly African Americans, so it, it's it, it, it's not a coincidence that um, that that's where Sessions uh, Sessions' energies are. These are always the issues that have animated him, and of course, from his point of view, his perspectives on these issues ha have nothing to do with race. And his supporters believe it's terribly unfair that just because he happens to be from Alabama and happens to come from uh, the segregated South that he would, that, that that would be held against him when it's certainly not something he can help. Uh, but it's impossible not to see his career as, as, as shadowed by this, considering the uh, extent to which it continues to intersect with all of the, all of the, all the policymaking that he does. And so in every respect where the Obama administration was trying to turn, uh, you know, the Department of Justice and by extension, law enforcement and civil rights enforcement in this country in a new direction, Sessions has, has rolled that back and reversed it in every single instance, whether it's, you know, changing the United States, uh, the, the side that the United States took in voting rights cases and uh, on the consent decrees, he's, he's pulled out of them on the drug and prison policy. In, in, when he was in the Senate, Sessions was the main objector to this bipartisan criminal justice reform movement. And as attorney general, he has con continued to intervene in the policymaking process, not just saying, you know, I'm going to implement the laws in the way that I see fit, but actually sending letters to the Senate saying, here's what I think you ought to do. You know, I don't think you should pass this bill that you're considering. So, yeah, I mean, I think to Sessions critics, he is uh, to the to the extent that, you know, Trump's critics believe that he has a racist agenda for the United States. It, 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 it is Sessions who is making that vision a reality. Sessions who is taking the sort of racially charged, racially coded messages that Trump uh, broadcast on the campaign trail and uh, turning them into reality, turning them into policy. Your story didn't talk that, mu that much about marijuana, but we focus on it pretty closely here. And were you able to chat with him at all about his, his stance on repealing the coal memo and where um, he sees things moving from where we're at now? Yeah, I did. Um, I spent a bit of time talking to him about that uh, and drawing him out on it and didn't have a chance to include it in the story. But um, as you mentioned, he, he, he withdrew that memo, which in effect puts the federal government back in the marijuana uh, enforcement business. But he also hasn't explicitly directed uh, the feds to crack down, and indeed they haven't cracked down on the states that have legalized marijuana. Uh, what he said to me was he does think those states are making a mistake. He doesn't. He he, he said, does anybody seriously think this is a health product? He 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 really dismisses out of hand 
the idea that marijuana can be considered anything other than a dangerous and unhealthy substance. And he believes that uh, uh, these states that believe that they're benefiting from legalization uh, will will in the end see those benefits outweighed by by what he sees as the costs. So, um, and then he went off on sort of a long tangent about illegal aliens who are coming into our country to uh, plant marijuana crops in national parks and destroy them with insecticide, which is apparently happening, according to him, in in several places. Uh, but uh, he um, he he does very much believe in the this this old idea that marijuana is a gateway drug that people who get into hard drugs have have almost always he told me uh it, it almost always turns out that they that they uh tried marijuana first you know he he's he's he says he's he's letting prosecutors apply their limited resources in the most effective way so he's not going to go and tell them uh to to prosecute these cases that are obviously of a of a lower priority uh but he doesn't support legalization in any way and i i i uh asked him if he's ever tried marijuana and he said no no he he never has and, <laughs> and i believe him <laughs> the question we were all waiting for <laughs> we, we, we were gonna ask if, right. if he prefers joints or bongs <laughs> but the answer is none apparently <laughs> All right. Well, those are those are our our questions, Molly. Thanks so much for for joining us. And everybody, you should read Mo- Molly's piece on on the cover of the recent Time magazine. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was our interview with Molly Ball. Be sure to check out her story in Time Magazine, and we hope you enjoyed that extra tidbit on Sessions' views on marijuana and the fact that he says he has never smoked. That's our show this week. As always, let us know what you think and what you want to know more about. You can email us um, your love mail, doodles, hate mail, questions, comments at hello at weedweek.net or hit us up on social media at Weed Week News. You can also find me on Twitter at EPFox, like the animal. And I'm on Twitter at Alex Halpern. And if you're feeling generous, hit us up on iTunes with a five-star review. We're a new show, so we really appreciate every review. I'm Alex Halpern. And I'm Haley Fox. Our producer is Katie Long and Alicia Byer wrote our theme music. We'll see you next week. Bye.